Amen. How you doing this morning? Good morning, Risen Hope Church. Oh, let me try that again. Good morning, Risen Hope Church. Are you excited about being in the presence of the Lord? Amen. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Gospel according to St. John, chapter 15. We will be breaking from our Genesis series for this particular special Sunday. John chapter 15. And every now and then we will have a special topic throughout our series in Genesis. This is one of those Sundays. Verse number one. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, nigh you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in a vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. I want to preach on the subject, living a fruitful Christ-centered life. Living a fruitful Christ-centered life. Life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the, the joy of being able to open up your word. Now, Father, I have made preparations, but I need your spirit's anointing, that you would open up our hearts and minds that we may hear from you. In the powerful and wonderful and precious name of Jesus, we do pray. And everybody say amen. 
So here we are in the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, the night before his crucifixion. Jesus just finished washing his disciples' feet in the upper room during his last supper. Disciples were visibly troubled with Jesus disclosing that his betrayer is at the dinner table. Disciples were troubled and because this was an ultimate scandal. After doing life with these men for three and a half years, they were overcome with sudden sadness as he states his physical departure back to the Father. They were on edge and unnerved by his words, according to chapter 13 and 14. But Jesus quickly assures them that he will still be present with them through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. And to alleviate their heartaches, Jesus commands them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Listen to the intimate language there. Now Jesus declares the tenth and the final of his I am statements in the book of John. As he travels through the dusty roads of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, very different from the Garden of Eden. He perhaps came across a vineyard full of grapevines and grabs the opportunity to grip his disciples' attention with a very profound lesson from a parable. In preparation for his departure, this becomes the most appropriate metaphor to encourage his students to abide in constant fellowship with him. The imagery of the fruit of the vine was already fresh on their minds during communion. When Jesus declared, I am the true vine and you are the branches. If you're going to live a fruitful, Christ-centered life, you have to do three things according to this text. Number one, you have to recognize the work of the Father. Number two, you have to reside in the words of the Son. And number three, you have to really live out of the overflow of God's love. Let me give you the first one. In Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples, he reminds them you have to recognize the work of the Father. Look at verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. God, as the gardener, is caring for the branches on the vine. Israel frequently is depicted in the Old Testament as a vine or a vineyard that eventually spoil and produce no fruit. And despite all of God's generosity and the care for the people of Israel, they did not yield the fruit that God desired. So he effectively started over with a single obedient shoot as suggested and prayed for in Psalm 80. In Psalm 80 it says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. 
but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. This psalm, this was a prophetic backstory behind Jesus saying that I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the obedient vine. Jesus is the beginning of a whole new planting by the Lord, and we are in him. Jesus is the one who gives the father the harvest that he deserves. Now that's the backstory behind Jesus saying, I am the true vine. There is no life outside of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the true life coming into the world, John says. He's the true bread coming down from heaven to give his life for the world. Jesus is the true vine producing life in all those who trust in him for salvation. Verse 2, he says, every branch in me that does not Bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we have to recognize the work of the Father with Jesus Christ at the center. Take note that Jesus is the center of the Father's work in our lives. I am the true vine. Many people have, have green thumbs. I, I don't. Um, it kind of grieves me when people give me a plant uh, with a flower pot, I, like I know what to do with that, right? Just about every plant a person has given me as a gift, I cringe because I know the plant will not survive under my supervision. And it's not that I don't care for it. It's not that I don't give it enough sunlight or I don't water it or I don't talk to it. I do. But for some reason, after all my researching and care, the plant still dies under my watch. So I'm forewarning you, please, don't give me a tomato plant or any other kind of plant. However, there is a member in the church that has given us a gift, okay? I won't say her name, but she's given us, and it's an interesting name. She said, this plant, no matter what you do, could never die, all right? It's a vine, and it's called the devil's ivy. I said, what? Should I even take that into my home? But then I realized, you know what? That's the only way a plant is going to survive in my home. And guess what? That was over four, five months ago, I believe. I might may, may be exaggerating how many months. But it was a while, and guess what? The plant is still there. <laughs> Amen. I share that cute story to say that I don't have a green hand. But the, but the Heavenly Father, He does. He knows what he's doing to the vine. He cares for the vine, right? The father's role is twofold here. The father prunes the branches to produce more fruit on the vine. Every year in Palestine, gardeners prune the vine. They cut off the dead wood, which has no life in it, and they trim the living branches so that they yield greater fruit. The vine growers primarily prune for two reasons. Number one, they prune, right, to give order and structure for the branches to grow. Because if you didn't prune, the branches would grow upward and outward and be very difficult to manage. The vine dresser snips the branches to shape them in the way that they should grow. 
much like a parent trains up a child in the way that he or she should go. Second reason is for pruning is that it allows the farmer to control the amount of fruit the vine produces. The more dead wood removed from that branch, the greater the yield of the fruit. You know, Jesus often used parables and figures of speech to arrest the listener's attention and force them to see themselves in the parable. This parable becomes a mirror to the disciples. And if the branches could speak, they would confess that the pruning process hurts. This is uncomfortable for believers. There is something about this process that is painful at times and even disruptive. But guess what? The father, who is an excellent gardener, is not into hurting us, nor is he into giving us quick fixes. Sometimes the process is painfully slow. Pruning hurts, but it also helps us to become holy. Very similar to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, the father's disciplines those whom he loves that we might share in his holiness. What does that mean? Essentially that no fruit-bearing branch is exempt from pruning. If you are a follower of Christ, you will be pruned. The pruning process is God's training for holy living. It was Charles Stanley that said it well. He says, adversity is always unexpected and unwelcome. It is an intruder and a thief. And yet in the hands of God, adversity becomes the means through which his supernatural power is demonstrated. Suffering is a window through which we learn what we need to know about God. It becomes God's university. I know it's hot in here, but follow me. Making disciples is not an easy process. It is trying, it is messy, it is slow, it is tedious and even painful. But it's worth every bit to the Father. Durable discipleship doesn't just happen without personal attention. Disciples are not mass-produced. Amen? And it's not like the Father wants quality over quantity. The Father wants both. These things I have spoken unto you, that you bear much fruit. Not only does the Father prune the branches to produce more fruit in the vine, the second aspect of the Father's role here is to cut away dead wood. The Father cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. In other words, he gets rid of dead wood. It was dead caution that said fruitfulness is the indelible, indelible mark of true Christianity. The alternative is dead wood, and dead wood must be cut off. Now, let me say this up front, that this is not referring to believers losing their salvation. It is referring to those who may have had a close contact with Jesus, professed faith in him, but did not have possession of faith in him. Can I get an Amen. In other words, they were not truly saved. John reveals in one of his epistles 
They went out from among us because they were never of us. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. When you think about it, if you've been in this Christian faith for some time and you still see no fruit, not even a single grape on your vine, you might have to ask yourself the question, am I connected to the true vine? Your connection, my connection with Christ is more than giving him a public verbal profession. Your connection with Christ produces fruit. Matthew records, he says, some 30, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. There is no branch truly connected to the vine that does not produce any fruit. Branches produce fruit at some level. And if you're going to live a fruitful, Christ-centered life, you have to recognize the work of the Father. Secondly, you have to reside in the words of the Son. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken unto you. The instrument through which God uses to prune us is the word of Christ. I know that that you don't hear the excitement right now in my voice, but there's something so powerful, so life-giving, so intimate, so refreshing about Christ's spoken words. Earlier he revealed in this gospel that his voice brings the dead to life in chapter 5. That he has the words of eternal life in chapter 6. That the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He calls them by name in chapter 10. All scripture is pointing to him as the consummate goal in chapter 5. During Jesus' last supper, when he was washing the disciples' feet, he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. He's referring to Judas. For he knew he w- who would betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Already you are clean or pruned, but the pruning process is not complete. You have to be pruned for salvation in Christ, yes, but the Father is still pruning us for our sanctification in Christ. John captures this cleansing in Jesus' prayer for the church when he prayed to his heavenly Father, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Paul later captured this intimacy when he describes Christ's profound love for the church. Husbands, as we heard preach this past two Sundays, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So that he may do what? That he might present the church to himself with, without spot or wrinkle in splendor, without wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The instrument through which God uses to cleanse us and conform us to his image is the word of Christ. Remember, Christ, Jesus is not merely downloading his teachings and his disciples. He, he is the very Logos of God incarnate, already taking hold in the lives of these believers. Being fruitful has a lot to do with our intimacy with Christ. Notice what Christ is calling us to do. 
He repeatedly used the word abide through this passage. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in a vine and neither can you unless you abide in me. Notice that abiding here is not automatic. It was Dr. Oswald Sanders that said each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. I thought that was a very bold statement until I had to actually look at the scripture supporting that reality. James says in chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And yet none of that is possible apart from the Holy Spirit and God's grace empowering us. Amen? Jesus is clearly calling us, abide in me. The word here is used 11 times in this passage. 40 times in the entire gospel, 27 times in John's epistles. Abide is a common expression that that John uses, but what does he mean by that? Here's the non-secret to a fruitful, Christ-centered life. Abide. It is an old English word that means remain or stay steady or keep your position. Abide in the Greek is the word minnow. In simple terms, it means to remain in the same place for a period of time. To make oneself at home. John commands us to abide in Jesus. It is the command that's in the present imperative, which calls believers to ab- that abiding is really a lifestyle. One of continual fellowship. Something that is only possible as we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. Intentional daily communion with Christ based on our union with Christ. It was Vance Hartner that said that abiding in him is really our relationship is fixed. That's salvation. But our fellowship with him depends on whether we are abiding in him, that's sanctification. Abiding in Christ has a lot to do with resting in the person and work of Christ. I'm not striving to abide in Christ to earn my salvation. I'm already saved by grace through faith. Amen? That is my vital union in Christ, with Christ. It cannot be tampered with. It is fixed. It is eternal. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. On the other hand, abiding in him is my daily communion with him. My communion with God in Christ does does change based on my faith and obedience. What we must be careful of is assessing our security of union with him and how well we're doing communion with him. Got to be careful not to twist that up there. Because abiding then becomes a chore or a checkbox. I read my Bible today, check. I prayed today, check. I went to church today, check. Or I watched it on live stream today, check. Remember, God the Father is faithful, patient, loving, and does not change just because we can't keep it together. 
says he is faithful even when we are unfaithful, for he cannot deny himself. J.R. Packer defined it this way. What it means to abide in Christ, he says, that is, to always be resting on him, anchored to him, fixed in him, drawing from him, continually connected to and in touch with him. This is a pervasive theme throughout chapters 14 through 17. There is no more precious lesson to learn, he says. No more enriching link and bond to cherish. No more vital connection to keep snug and tight so that it never loosens than this. Abiding in Christ brings peace, joy, love, answers to prayer, and fruitfulness in service. The abiding life is the abundant life. Amen? Union with Christ makes the art of abiding a duty of delight. The deep, rich fellowship of his presence became the mainstay of the early church. Abiding in Christ is plumbing the depths of our union with him. Can you imagine what it would be like to live all the time with people who had but one desire, to know Christ, to know him personally, to know him intimately, and to live in his presence? No, 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 it doesn't mean that we'll have a perfect community without any messiness. That's not what it's talking about. That will happen when we arrive in glory. What it does mean is that we share a common bond to know Christ intimately in community with other believers because the life of the believer is never intended to be experienced alone. Hello to those of you who are watching online. Amen. Amen. And who rather not be here in person, even though you could be here. In reality, we long for that fellowship. We pray for that fellowship. We're compelling others toward that end. Jesus Christ, our high priest, prayed for that in chapter 17, that we will be one even as the Father and He is one. No branch has life in itself. It is utterly dependent upon the life and fruitfulness of the vine, and the life of the vine is truly in the branches like the sap that's coursing through a plant. The life of the vine is already pulsating through the branches. Abiding is a reciprocal relationship. Abide in us, and he will, we will abide in him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John chapter 14, verse 23. To abide in Jesus is not a static relationship but an ever-deepening and joyful and vital fellowship with him. And guess what? Maturity is not measured in length but in depth. Your maturity is not measured by how long you've been a Christian, but the depth of your walk with Christ. Yet your intimacy with Christ has everything to do with your identity in Christ. Let's not get that twisted. I am the vine and you are the branches, he says. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, guess what? You can do nothing. What a bold statement. 
There are a number of beautiful imageries that capture our relationship with God in Christ. We are the body where Christ is the head. We are the bride where Christ is the groom. We are the sheep where Christ is the good shepherd. We are the temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells. The image that is captured here is that Christ is the true vine and we are the branches. The branches derive their life from the vine and the vine produces its fruit through the branches. Discipleship is not just a matter of, this is what Tim Keller said, bending your will to Jesus' will. No. It's melting your heart into a whole new shape. A disciple is not someone who simply sets a new priority. A disciple finds a new identity in Christ. Not only is Christ at the center of your life as disciples, but he is the source of your life and your fruitfulness. Living a fruitful, Christ-centered life means that we take up residence in his word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you wish and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We automatically gravitate towards that later, latter part of the verse. Ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. We love that part. It is interesting, though, that six times during Jesus' final discourse, he reiterates, ask and it will be given to you. Paul Miller said, Jesus' teaching on prayer can be summarized into one word, ask. God delights in us asking, but he also delights in giving us good gifts. However, we must be careful to note that prayer is not an attempt to control God. It is not magic. And it goes without saying that God is not our personal vending machine. We have to be in the vine. You really do have to look at the fine print here. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's the context and qualifications for asking. To embrace the heart and the mind of Christ. But what if you don't get what you're, what you're asking for? What if you prayed and cried and still no answer? What do you do with that? James asked, are you praying with the right motives? Are you coming to him in faith? But what if you're praying according to his will and you're coming to him in faith and you still don't get an answer? The Apostle Paul prayed for a thorn to be removed from his flesh three times and no answer according to the way Paul wanted it. He prayed three times that the thorn be removed from his flesh, but God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength, my power is made perfect in your weakness. What if you've been praying for God to change him, but God really wants to change you in the process? He still answered your prayer. Not the way you wanted it, though. Abiding is a perfect way to describe the praying life. Abiding is a particular way to describe growing deep down our roots in order to grow up in faith. Paul said, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus, live in him or continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, Colossians 2. 
But why pray? Why pray? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Think about it. Jesus is in essence saying, you are, you are nothing apart from me. You cannot do anything apart from me. Watch this. It's my breath in your lungs. <laughs> so pour out your praise. I put my wind beneath your sails. All your microatoms are being held together by the power of my spoken word. I know you better than you know yourself. Every strand of hair on your head is numbered. Can you count your hairs on your head? I know your thoughts before you think them. I know your words before you speak them. I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb, for I made you. I know the motives of your heart. I put the heart in your chest to pump the blood in your veins. You are made in my image. You belong to me. You're not autonomous. You're not an independent free agent answering to no one but yourself. If you believe in me, you are my disciple, and you can't do anything apart from me, Rick Butler. I am the vine, you are the branches. You draw your life, your freedom, your joy, your peace, your everything from me. That's why you need my spirit. That's why you need my helper. That's why you need the comforter. That's why you need the parakletos, because I am your everything. You can't do anything apart from me. All of your personal accomplishments, all of your achievements, all of your hard work is not possible were it not for my power and my grace in your life. You can't take any credit for it, Rick Butler. Parenthetically, this is why we need humility and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's why this chapter ends with Jesus promising the Holy Spirit. It's not possible apart from him. Taking up residence in God's word allows Christ's words to dwell in us richly. So whether you're wondering if you're being fruitful Christian or not, ask yourself this question. Am I more like Jesus? That's what I ask myself constantly when I'm in my flesh. Is this life flowing through me in the ordinary activities and relationships of every day? Do the grapes on my vine or the grapes in the vine in Christ, do my grapes of my branches point others to the vine? Do my grapes point other people to the vine, the true vine? Not only is it allowing his word to dwell in you richly by his grace, but it is consciously spending quality time with the Lord in prayer and in the word. Undistracted devotion to his person. Thomas Goodwin points out that our fallen nature, though, is actually allergic to God. It never wants to get close to him, does it? Our fallen nature constantly pulls us away from prayer. The enemy within would rather not pray. We'd rather not pray because of our sinful nature. But not to pray is the most arrogant form of pride and independence toward God. 
You can Instagram that. Yet in real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him. We desire the things that he desires. We love the things that he loves. We will the things that he wills. This is the non-secret to the fruitful Christian Christ-centered life. Too often, we pray only for what we desire and forget to ask God for what he wants of us at a particular moment. Are we taking up residence in the words of Christ? Do others know where you live? I'm not talking about your geographical location. Do they know that you reside in God's holy word? Treating your Bible like you treat your cell phone. What if you did that? Amen. I'm not going to re-preach that. Do they know that you reside in Christ? In other words, do they know your address? In Acts chapter 4, when the religious leaders tried to confront Peter and John after healing the lame beggar, It says that they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a testimony, what a compliment. These religious leaders knew where the disciples lived. Yet those who do not abide in Christ have every reason, according to this text, to be concerned. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Wow. Now here's where people, when they come to this part of the narrative in Jesus' words, and say, well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that a believer can lose their salvation if they stop abiding in Christ? No. That would contradict everything that John revealed in his gospel according to eternal life. But unfortunately, Judas fell in this category. And it is sobering to think that this guy who walked with Jesus for three and a half years never had a true, sincere faith. Because what's eventually inside you is going to come out of you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You will know them by their fruit. For three and a half years, Judas eventually gave himself away. If you wish to enjoy the status of being a part of God's chosen vine, you must be rightly related to Jesus. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation this morning? Or is that something you're still working on? Listen, there are many children who grow up in the church and assume that they're saved by virtue of their parents' faith. However, you must know Christ for yourself. You see, folks can be in close contact with Jesus and and still not know him. Proxy does not translate into intimacy. Jesus will declare in that final day to many of his would-be followers, depart from me, you workers of iniquity or evildoers, I never knew you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A disciple in the Greek, the word bethetos, has come to mean one who attaches themselves to the person of Christ for the purpose of becoming like him and making other followers for him. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. J.C. Rao said the zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up into one thing. And that one thing is to please God, whether he lives or die, whether he has health or sickness, whether he is rich or poor, whether he pleases man or gives offense, whether he is thought wise or foolish, whether he gets blame or praise, whether he gets honor or shame. For all this jealous or zealous man cares for is nothing at all but one thing, one thing that burns within his heart. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. The chief objective of the vine grower is to bring glory to himself. Gandhi was asked by a very close friend, if you admire, why, why is it that you, if you admire Christ so much, why don't you just become a Christian? They said to Gandhi. God reportedly replied, when I meet a Christian who is a follower of Christ, I may consider it. What was he saying? By implication, was he suggesting that he hasn't really truly met a real Christian or a follower of Christ? Well, that's what he means by implication. Living a Christ-centered, fruitful life, we have to recognize the work of the Father. We have to reside in the words of the Son. But lastly, we have to really live out of the overflow of God's love. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments in abiding his love. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am giving you the blueprint of divine love. Suddenly there seems to be a, a shift uh, away from the knowledge of the vine to talking about uh, love and command. But this is, there's an unmistakable relationship between the two. You see, love is fruit produced from the vine. Arguably, fruit could be referring to the conversion of souls, as we see later in this text and witnessed throughout this book, especially in chapter 4. Yet love, joy, and peace is mentioned in chapters 14 through 17, and this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing drudgery about keeping his commands. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's nothing sterile or burdensome or boring about your relationship with Christ. It is full of joy breaking in on your life. It does not mean there's going to be the absence of sorrow and pain and grief. But what it means is the steady presence of God in whatever you're going through. Amen? The fruit of the vine is always for celebration. Whether Jesus is turning water into wine at the wedding of Canaan or informing his disciples in the Last Supper that he's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew in his Father's kingdom. There is always an overpowering, joyous element that flows out of vital union with Christ, who is the true vine. Christ's supreme joy came from knowing that he was obedient to the Father's will. Christ gave these men his command to love, that they might experience the same joy that he experiences with the Father. In a sense, the more we take in Christ's spoken words, we experience an increase 
unspeakable joy that flows out of our obedience. It was Charles Spurgeon that said that since we are made to be happy in Christ, joy is an essential part of human health. When a, when a person is full of joy, it shines out of his eyes. It sparkles in his countenance. It quickens the flow in the blood in his veins. It is a healthy thing in all respects. Joy has clear health benefits. Take up residence in God's love starts with the wonder of the Trinity. We learn to love others out of the overflow of the mutual an eternal exchange between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That's a deep and profound love when you really think about it. Living a fruitful Christ-centered life means that we live out of the overflow of God's love within the Trinity. Without the Father loving the Son and the Spirit, and without the Spirit loving the Father and the Spirit, and without the Spirit loving the Father and the Son, all before the creation of the world, we would know nothing of love because love would, would never have existed. But we know love because God is love. We know love because it has always existed within the triune Godhead. We love because he loved us first. John Owen wrote on the Father's love for the Son. He says that this love is really the fountain, the prototype of all loves. All loves in creation was introduced from this fountain to give a shadow and a semblance of it. Indeed, in the triune God is the love behind all loves, the life behind all life, music behind all music, beauty behind all beauty, joy behind all joy. To truly love others the way God wants us to requires a will it, not just I don't feel it. Even if you don't feel it, you will it. This is my command that you love one another even as I love you. This is not a superficial love. It is deep like the ocean. It seeks the lowest place. It reaches up to the heights of the heavens. Paul said it's, it's so big, there's no getting around this love. It's so impactful, there's no getting over it. Love one another as I have loved you. Makes our faith credible to the watching world around us, even the neighbors across the street. But how do we do this practically as I wrap this up? In Christ, he has given us a blueprint to love others the right way. Love is not just abstaining from doing your brother or sister harm. It is looking for ways to do him or her good, even if he or she doesn't deserve it. This Christ kind of love is giving people not what they deserve, but what they need. In reality, we, we tend to to look pretty good until our love is tested. Isn't that true for those of you who are married? When true love is required, when we're called upon to act in selflessness and without conditions, when we have something significant that we have to forgive, that's when we find out what we're made of when it comes to God's love. Isn't that so true? Christ is the vine and we are the branches. His love is pulsating through us. Are you becoming more gentle, more tolerant, more gracious with others around you, more kind, more forgiving? Are you rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep? God's love is a game changer. It really is. I recall sitting in my office this past week during 
my lunch break and felt a strong, unusual feeling that came over me out of nowhere. And I started grieving for several people that God was bringing to my mind just out of nowhere, and I just started tearing up. And as I began to pray for each person, I, I think about the, the, the mother of, of my, one of my friends who accidentally lost her four-year-old daughter to drowning, her only daughter. Started thinking about coworkers who were hurting on the job. I started thinking about people in my life who are battling terminal illness and loss. I started thinking about family members going through adversity. I started thinking about all these things, and I just started to pray. And I remember a coworker came into the office and said, everything all right? I said, yeah, everything's fine. You know, hurry up and wipe my tears. Said, excuse me, I have to step out and go into the bathroom. I stepped into the bathroom, and I just remember to continue to pray for all these people that God was bringing to my mind because God was giving me this sense that people were hurting around me. And it made me think about how in this text of Scripture, when it says that no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends, I thought about how God looked over the portals of glory and saw our demise, saw us drowning in our own sin, in our deep depravity, lost and separated from him. And I heard a voice, who will go for us? And the Lord Jesus says, here I am, Father, prepare a body for me, I will go, according to Isaiah. And he wraps himself in flesh and travels, descends from glory. Made the leap from 42 generations down through the line of David. Born of the Virgin Mary, wrapping himself in human pigmentation. Becoming like us in all manners. Tempted as we are, yet without sin, becoming like us because he was identifying with us in the fullness of our humanity. And he died on the cross and he took the weight of God's wrath. I thought about the illustration that was used earlier about the, the, the rock being crushed. That was our Lord Jesus who was crushed for our wrath so that we can be restored into a right relationship with him. No greater love has one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. What's interesting here, in this tenacious determination to do his father's will, he dies on the cross for us. Ironically, he's not dying initially for his friends. He's dying for his enemies who becomes his friends. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This was God's love at his finest, supremely demonstrated at the cross. Love came down and rescued us. This is how God demonstrates or show his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love him, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Words fail me so I can only resort to songs to resonate with my heart. I'm not going to sing this. I'm just going to quote a song by Corey Asbury. 
He calls it reckless love. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. So let me ask you a question. Do you know this love that God has poured out in his son, Jesus Christ? If you don't know him, today could be the day of salvation for you. For the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you're watching online, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, today, repent, turn away from your sin, and turn yourself toward Christ. And he will forgive you, and he will restore to you eternal life that was lost in the garden. If you're going to live a fruitful Christ-centered life, you have to recognize the work of the Father, you have to reside in the words of the Son, and you have to really live out the overflow of God's love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your kindness and that we heard your word. We pray that we would put it into practice. Help us to become your disciples. Help us to bear much fruit and so prove to be your disciples. This we pray in the wonderful and powerful name of Christ. Amen. Am I, am I closing in? Amen. Let's, let's stand as we... Let's look to the Lord. Father, we know that apart from you, apart from your Son, we can do nothing. But we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Help us, Lord God, this week to hear from you. Help us to be obedient to your voice. To live a fruitful, Christ-centered life. That we might focus on you, Lord God. That we may know you in a very intimate way. Help us to plumb the depths of our union with you by living in intimate communion with you, by abiding in you, and so proving to be your disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. Go in peace. Amen.